invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to the Psalms, to page 542, if you're using your um, Pew Bible, and Psalm 26 is what you're looking for. And I am going to pray. They're, they're actually here tonight, so that's a good thing. I was going to do this whether you guys were here or not. But I got permission today to uh, tell the congregation that Lori uh, Hasbin is expecting and Dr. Joel Hasbin are expecting their second child. So when we pray for the preaching of God's word in a minute, we are going to pray for this new life that has been given to them and to our congregation. And uh, so happy for them. And email will go out this week to remind you to pray. They'll go on the bulletin so that you can have that name regularly there, but pray for them. I'm not going to tell you if it's a boy or girl. I do know they've told me, but there are a few people, especially Pastor Trescar. I can see him right now back there shaking his head. Don't, don't tell me. So we're not going to tell Pastor Trescar and David Rockhill. I think those are the two people who don't want to know. So uh, don't tell everybody, but we're very happy and rejoicing, rejoicing with them. Psalm 26, if you would please stand. Let's read God's word together. With this just brief introduction, we live in a world of injustice. It's one of the most common experiences we have as human beings is injustice. How do we deal with that? This psalm tells us how to stand on level ground in the midst of injustice. Let's read together. Psalm 26, David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, And telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep then my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. And this is the Lord's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come this evening to rejoice over your goodness to us as a congregation. And we do rejoice in your goodness to Joel and Lori in the giving of this little one. Not just to them, but to us as a church family This is a great gift. And so we pray even now your protection over this little one, your strengthening hand with Lori and grace to be given to all involved. May this one know you from the earliest of days and never know a day outside of your grace. Father, we do come to you also as we give thanks. We also come to you as a congregation with troubles and sorrows. And we need these psalms for that reason. Our enemies are many in the world and even in our own hearts. And every one of us has been falsely accused and every one of us faces these sort of struggles. We pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in integrity in the place you've put us, that you would help us to look to you and you alone for grace, and that you would strengthen us in all our trials. 
Bless now the preaching of your word as we consider it together. Open our hearts to receive it and not just our minds and ears. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this evening by quoting a verse I probably don't need to quote. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one, I trust you know this, no one other than Jesus has kept God's law perfectly in heart and body. No one can approach God and ask for heaven on the basis of wages or what is due. Paul makes this point powerfully in Romans 4 when he notes that Abraham was justified by faith and not as a payment or as wages owed by, him, owed by God to him. Dr. Boyce put this so well in one of our hymns, Hymns for a Modern Reformation, when he wrote that little line that has always stayed with me over the years. He wrote, we never put God in our debt. And I think that's well put. Now, probably most of us understand that doctrine tonight. After all, if you're here on Super Bowl Sunday with the Eagles playing, you probably have a real interest in theology and scripture. So most of us realize, uh, not just from the Bible, but even from our own experience, that we never outgrow God's grace. We always need his forgiveness. We always need his mercy, his compassion. And even as I preach this sermon, I'm aware that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner, and that we're all wrestling with sin. We need God's grace every moment of every day. But what if this teaching, this teaching of grace is taken too far? Is that possible? Is it possible to take the teaching of biblical grace too far and to twist it into something that is less than biblical? I think it's possible and I think it's been done. In his day, the remarkable German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer condemned the preaching of what he called at the time cheap grace. But more importantly than Bonhoeffer's words, Paul speaks of those who in his own day used grace teaching, the teaching of grace, as an excuse for sinful behavior. Some were saying, let us sin that grace may abound. So even in the Bible itself, we have examples of people using the Bible's powerful message of grace and twisting it to promote sinful practices. One of the other ways this wonderful teaching is twisted is when people use the teaching of grace to obliterate the Bible's teaching on integrity and personal holiness. Psalm 26, our psalm tonight, is a remedy for this. It is a psalm of innocence or integrity. David is not saying, and let me repeat that, David is not saying in this psalm that he is perfect, that he's without sin. However, he is saying quite emphatically that he is a man of integrity. The key verse of the psalm and the verse that brings all this, I think, into focus for me is verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. David in this just one verse, right, just one verse is saying, yes, I'm a man of integrity, but I'm also a sinner needing redemption and grace. Now, how is that possible? What does that mean? 
My prayer is that as we go through this psalm tonight, you will see how these two statements can actually go together. In fact, we need this verse. At different times in our lives, we will all face false accusations and suspicions. How can you respond when someone questions your integrity and you know you're innocent? How can you say, yes, I am a sinner, but no, I am not the man or woman you are making me out to be? This is what David does here so beautifully and so humbly. And because this is scripture, we can use these very words in our own life. There is a way, there is a way to stand on the level ground of integrity while also humbly confessing that you are also a sinner. So look with me for a few moments at this wonderful psalm. First of all, the first thing I want you to notice is what David does in order to walk this path of integrity. He first requests of God a full judgment. That's the first thing I want you to see, especially in verses 1 through 3. David requests, he asks for judgment. He presents himself to God for examination. Again, you see this especially in verses 1 through 3. David writes, literally in Hebrew, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. The psalm begins with David presenting himself to God for judgment, to be searched, to be tried, because he has walked in integrity or wholeness, honesty. Now, our first reaction to that verse may be, David, what are you doing? Have you lost it? Why would anyone in their right mind ask God to judge them? Since we are all sinners, and we all are sinners, shouldn't we only ever ask for grace and never for judgment? Maybe we're thinking to ourselves, isn't this psalm a little bit dangerous or maybe even arrogant? I can certainly understand if that's your first reaction, but let's try to understand what David is doing here and in many other psalms like this one. Here's what I think is going on, and this isn't just my opinion, but the opinion I think of everyone I studied with this week to look at the psalm. David has found himself here in a situation where he's been falsely accused of something or is in danger of being punished along with a lot of other people who've done something bad. But it's a tricky situation. It's a tricky situation. He can't easily prove his innocence. Remember, David has no DNA evidence, no cameras, no tracking devices, no cell phone text streams to consult. And even with all those, we still find ourselves in situations like this. But in the ancient biblical world, how much more so? And this would have been very common. So he's in a very difficult position. He knows himself to be innocent, but he can't easily prove it. Well, there's good news. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God, through Moses, anticipated that these kinds of situations would arrive. And so Moses instructed the people, when this happened, to go to the priest and seek a ruling from the Lord himself. And that's what David is doing in this psalm. He's appealing to God for justice. 
We'll study these verses in just a moment, but if you peek down to verses 6, 7, and 8, you'll see that's what's actually happening here. David writes, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar. There have been a great altar and a great basin beside it for washing. O Lord, I proclaim thanksgiving aloud and tell of all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. That's language of the temple or the tabernacle and the place where your glory dwells. So David has followed the law as given by Moses. He's gone up to the tabernacle. Remember, the temple hasn't been built yet under his son Solomon, but there is a magnificent tabernacle in Jerusalem and a great altar and a great basin. He goes up there and he submits himself to the judgment of God. And he's probably also, if we read Moses, he's also looking for the involvement of the priests as Moses prescribed. As one author put it, David is appealing over the heads of his enemies, over the heads of his enemies, appealing to God himself for judgment. David is not the only one to do this in your Bible Jeremiah does this passionately. His ministry was absolutely hated. When you read Jeremiah, I've been reading him recently for my personal worship. It's a book of unrelenting sorrow. His ministry is never accepted and it's never liked. And he's accused his entire ministry of being evil. And so what does he do? He appeals above the heads of his accusers to God himself. Paul does the same thing in First and Second Corinthians. And closer to our own time, you may recognize these famous words. Here I stand, I can do no other. Those were the words of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms when he was accused of being a heretic and an enemy of the church of Jesus. Now today, we have no longer a temple or an altar, but Jesus does command us to take our differences to the church. In Matthew 18... When all other private attempts have failed, you are to make your dispute known to the church, to the elders of the church. Or consider Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6. In that text, Paul fiercely rebukes the Corinthians for going to secular courts over their disputes and commands them to go to the house of God for judgment. Of course, there will be situations where that's not possible. The Bible fully recognizes the role of civil authority, civil judge, the police. But in many situations with other believers, we should appeal to the church for judgment and take it directly to the Lord as well. But even if all those things seem to fail, the church lets you down, other Christians don't listen to you, or they all get it wrong, we have the same encouragement David found here in verses 1 through 3. We can make our appeal directly to God. We can call on him to judge. When we do that, when we call on him to judge, we're not saying that we're perfect. We're not saying that we don't need grace. We're simply saying that we are seeking to walk in integrity and are innocent of these false charges. Now, before you run off to email the session and ask for a ruling... Please consider once again verses 2 and 3 especially. In these verses, David asks God not only to judge or decide his case, but also he says, now prove me, try me, get inside my heart. 
As is often true in Hebrew poetry, and this is the case throughout the Psalms, the second line of Hebrew poetry builds upon or advances or makes stronger the first line of poetry. So first line, David says, judge me. And then the second line, to make it even stronger, he says, no, don't just judge my case, O Lord. Try me, test me, prove me. Go at the heart level. Go deep. Examine my motives. Examine my attitudes. Examine everything about this situation. Now, those words there in your English Bible, prove me, try me, test me, hear me, those words, you might recognize them where they're used in other places in Scripture. In the middle of total anguish, total anguish, Job says, but he, that is God, knows the way that I take when he has tried me, same word, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Or Psalm 139, search me, there's that word, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The man or woman of integrity has this humility and this vulnerability. David is saying, I'm confident that I'm innocent in this matter, but I want to hide nothing. Let God search me out. Let me be tried first. David knows, you see, that as he presents himself to God in this matter, he must welcome the full searching of his entire self. God does not judge by outward appearances. He knows what is really going on. So often in life, and haven't you found this to be true, the first person who speaks seems right. They win everyone over and people stop searching for the truth. So that person who slandered you was probably believed. It seemed believable. But what a joy to remember that God's gaze pierces flesh and sees to the heart of the matter. He's not swayed by the better set of clothes. He's not swayed by the better argument or the better lawyer. He searches the deep things, the heart. And brothers and sisters, this should make every one of us pause in godly fear and reverence. You may come to God or the church and make your case. Present your innocence in a situation. Many have done so, and as we've seen in Scripture, it's right to do that. Please do that. But know this. In the moment you present your case, the Spirit will be searching you. You may come intending to condemn someone else and find out that just as you're removing the speck from your brother's eye, the log is discovered in your own eye. This is what it means to ask for testing. So first of all, David asks that God would judge him and test him, and he presents himself humbly and vulnerably for that testing. Second, throughout the psalm, especially I have in mind here the big sort of middle of the psalm, throughout it, David presents evidence. He presents evidence. He tells us what's in his heart and how he lives his life. And this is the key for this evening. The key is that there is symmetry, harmony between what he is saying to the priest and what he does in his private life. 
There is harmony between what occupies his heart and what occupies his time. The Hebrew word for integrity literally means one whole thing. So in presenting his evidence, David is showing a heart and life that are united. David beautifully describes what is in his heart in verse 3. For your steadfast love, he says, is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. With the time we have tonight, I can't adequately describe for you the two key words that are in that one verse. They're two of the most precious and profound words in the whole of the Old Testament. The first is hesed, meaning God's fierce loyalty to his covenant. And the second word is amet, which means the certain, predictable, and right behavior of God. David is saying the hesed, your covenant faithfulness, Lord, and amet, your perfectly predictable character because you don't change, are before my eyes. In other words, this is what rules my heart. This is what I'm meditating on even as false accusations are made. Even as people whisper and people plot against me, David is transfixed, not by what they're saying, but by the faithfulness and dependability of God. That's what's on his mind. He is committed to the full searching of God and the church while also being completely at peace, knowing that God's faithfulness will win out in the end no matter what. Their plots cannot ultimately prevail because of God's faithfulness and truth, his hesed and his amets. In contrast, notice that David's enemies are men marked fundamentally by deception. Verse 4 reads, I do not sit with men of lies, nor do I consult with hypocrites. And then in verse 10, they are described as men with hands full of bribes. As his life is marked by transparency and wholeness, he goes to the temple, he's examined by the priests and by God. So the lives of his enemies, in contrast, are marked by hiding and deception. They have no integrity. Literally, they are not whole people. They are slippery people. Divided people. What can make this even more powerful, I think, for us is this important realization. Maybe you picked this up already. The men in view here in this chapter are not Gentiles, but Jews. This is important. David here is not speaking about distant, unrighteous Gentiles living in a faraway land or highway bandits out on the road or something like that. None of those people could have brought a charge against David, and he would never have been tempted or even had the opportunity, probably, to sit with that kind of person. No, the people he's describing here are sitting in the church. They're going to the temple just like him, but their true lives are hidden. In fact, the word here in the text literally means to hide or to be hidden. You may know a little of the terrible tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's the story of a man who during the daytime is an altruistic man, a doctor, 
But then at night, he transforms into Mr. Hyde and fulfills all his horrific, sinful desires. The author, Robert Louis Stevenson, claimed that part of the book came to him in a nightmare. But the real power of the story is the way it speaks to ordinary people in the daylight. The hypocrite is not fundamentally one, but two. Edward Hyde's name is, of course, not an accident. He is hidden, Hyde. David calls these men hidden men, men with two lives, men who are not standing on even ground. They are not on the level, we might say. When we recently elected elders and deacons, one of the big questions we wanted to answer as a church was this. Is this man's life basically whole? Is he essentially the same person at home that he is at church? We weren't looking for Jesus. We weren't looking for perfection. But we were looking for integrity. One man, not two. Another way he clearly presents the evidence is by talking about his desires, his loves, and his hates. Again, you have this feature of Hebrew poetry. Verse 4 says, I don't sit with men of falsehood. And then verse 5 intensifies and adds, actually, you could do it this way kind of literally, actually, I hate the assembly of the evildoers. Not only will I not sit with them, I don't even go in with them. It's not that I just refrain from doing it. It's that it disgusts me. Remember, again, David is not talking here about going to work and sitting with unbelievers as you may do tomorrow in your offices. That's not what he's talking about. So please don't go to work tomorrow with a bad attitude and sit down in your office and say, well, pastor told me to hate the assembly of the evildoers. David is not talking here about Gentiles, people who don't know the Lord. He's talking about false believers. This is exactly the point made by Paul to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. He explains to that church that in asking them to separate from immoral people, he did not mean cutting themselves off from unbelievers. Rather, he explains, quote, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty, guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we should get caught up in everything our unbelieving friends do or our unbelieving coworkers do either. There are other passages of Scripture that warn us about being wise in those situations. But the Bible never calls us to cut ourselves off from broader society. Rather, we are to cut ourselves off from false brethren, false ministries, and fake churches. That is what David hates here. He hates the hypocrisy. He hates the being one thing when you're at the temple and then going out and oppressing the poor or visiting your mistress. On the one hand, David hates these things. On the other, notice he loves things too, doesn't he? Verses 6 through 8 are about what he loves. He loves going around the altar. That is, he loves public worship with the people of God. He loves to praise the Lord out loud. This probably wasn't just him, but lots of people shouting praises to God around the tabernacle in public worship. 
The French theologian John Calvin makes a really critical point here, one that we can easily miss. Calvin points out that some of these hypocrites, some of these people would have been there too. These fake Jews would have shown up and done their thing just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. But, says Calvin, do you notice something? This doesn't stop David from loving the assembly of the believers. It's good to hate hypocrisy and to avoid those who are living a double life. When we meet people like that in the church, we're to call them to repentance and even as David does here, take them to the church for judgment. However, our frustration with the church, its impurity and its problems should never drown out our love for worship and other believers. Even though there were hypocrites in the pews, and there still are, David still loved God's house. So we've seen that he presents himself for judgment. He opens his heart and life as evidence. And then finally, in the last several verses of the psalm, we have this wonderful prayer of integrity. Look especially at verses 11 and 12. But as for me, in other words, whatever happens, as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. I started off this evening by saying that integrity is a biblical principle and we need it. And that it does not, properly understood, it does not nullify or destroy grace. Well, verse 11 brings all this into perfect harmony. David makes a commitment to close out the psalm. I will, it's a future tense, I will in the future walk in my integrity. In other words, whatever happens, I will follow the Lord and submit myself to his searching gaze. But just as he says that, he immediately asks for grace, doesn't he? He prays, redeem me and be gracious to me. Now, wait a minute, which is it? Is he innocent and full of integrity or is he guilty and needing forgiveness? The answer, of course, is yes. Biblical integrity means that you must speak honestly. You must say, I'm innocent of this false charge. And yet at the same time, you can say and must say, but I am not innocent in general. This is why the truly innocent person will be deeply humble even while they are protesting their innocence. I think of Stephen in the book of Acts. As they were stoning him as an unbeliever, the Bible says as they were doing this, he had the face of an angel and he prayed for those who were harming him. And I've had the privilege as a pastor over the years of seeing this up close on a few occasions. Someone walking in integrity while being persecuted, while suffering injustice, and this wonderful coming together of deep humility and yet proclaiming truly and consistently their innocence in the matter. There are many times in life and history when we cannot get justice in this life. In recent years, we've experienced numerous mass shootings that typically end with the shooter taking his own life. It may seem, at least initially, that there is no justice to be had in the world. 
He will never face the families of his victims or be held accountable by us. In other smaller cases, much smaller cases, we may be injured, we may be cheated or slandered by someone, but find once again that there's no clear way for us to get justice. Sadly, injustice is not rare, but injustice is a constant and frequent experience in this life. But David here reminds us of an incredibly comforting and sobering truth. God is the final judge of every person, and injustice does not have to change us. Did these hypocrites, these hidden men, ever get what they deserved? We have no idea. But we do know is that their sin did not lead him, that is David, to give up his integrity. He did not stoop to their level. He did not get pulled into their schemes. He didn't stop going to the temple, even though some of these men would have been there. When we're being attacked, it is so easy to just play along, to attack back, to use the same underhanded practices. Maybe that is the real trial, the real examination after all, the real searching. Under attack, Will a hidden man or woman emerge in you? Maybe David could have gone out and bribed a few judges himself, but instead he makes his appeal to God's throne and maintains his integrity. And this, I think, is what it means to stand on level ground. Instead of endless vengeance and recrimination, we have this hope, this rock, this floor to stand on. My God is just and all his ways are right. So brothers and sisters, use this psalm so that you may endure and remain unchanged in your integrity in the day of injustice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that we will be subject, maybe even this week, to injustice, false accusations, hatred of all kinds, discriminations of all kinds. May none of these sins ever penetrate our hearts and lives. May we stand on the level ground of that integrity which you give, and may we look to you for hope. Comfort especially those tonight who are suffering in this way, who are feeling the intense pressure and pain of false accusation, who may even feel that they are being swept away with the judgment of the wicked and that no distinction is being made. Help them to look to you and to find in you a perfectly righteous judge who is also a God of perfect grace. Help us and strengthen us in this time of trial, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.